Acts chapter 24, verses 1 through 21. Paul was escorted from Jerusalem to the city of Caesarea to the north in order to stand trial before Felix, the provincial Roman governor. He is at this point being held in a palace near the sea, a palace that was built by Herod the Great decades before a complex that's now being used by Felix as his official residence. And it is here that we are picking up with our reading in Acts chapter 24, starting in verse 1 and going through verse 21. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders, with an attorney named Tertullus, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. After Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, Since we have through you attained much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. But that I may not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us by your kindness a brief hearing. For we have found this man a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to desecrate the temple. And then we arrested him. We wanted to judge him according to our own law, but Lysias, the commander, came along and with much violence took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. By examining him yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. Verse 10. When the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense, since you can take note of the fact that no more than twelve days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship, neither in the temple nor in the synagogues nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot, nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. But this I admit to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings, in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you and to make accusation if they should have anything against me. Or else... Let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council, other than for this one statement, which I shouted out while standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. This is the word of the Lord. What is the purpose of a trial? You would probably answer, to convict the guilty and acquit the innocent. As far as the individual on trial is concerned, that is the goal of court proceedings. But I would offer that what is occurring at the same time 
is a quest for the truth. If someone is really guilty of what they've been charged with, we need proof. If someone is innocent, we want to ensure that they don't get punished. But in either case, what are we doing? We are searching for the truth. Justice is a great concern for the Lord because he is the God of truth. According to Roman law, the accused must face his accusers. It was the the ruling Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, that took issue with Paul. So after Paul had been in custody in Caesarea for five days, a contingency from the council in Jerusalem arrived. And the intensity with which they took issue with Paul is evident by the fact that verse 1, the high priest himself, the head honcho, he was even willing to make such a long and time-consuming journey. Accompanying the high priest and a few of the elders was an attorney, Tertullus, whose job it was to present the case against Paul. He not only elaborated the charges, he was also tasked with furnishing proof. Felix, as the judge in this case, would consider the charges, consider the evidence, and then allow the accused, Paul, to make a defense. There is no jury. The governor was invested with the power to declare innocence or guilt and to decide sentencing. This type of Roman trial was open to the public, and so there would have been multiple people present. Now you'll notice, maybe you already have, some similarities between our modern Western trials and Roman trials, but you will also notice some significant differences. From what we know about Roman law, secular historians, that is historians that don't necessarily even believe the Bible is God's word, they uniformly cite this passage in Acts as one of the clearest historical accounts of how governors conducted trials in the provinces. So when they want to find a clear example of what history tells them about Roman law, they turn to Acts 24, which is another confirmation of how accurate Luke, the writer of Acts, was as a recorder of facts. Paul's fate here lies in the hands of one man, Felix. But we also must recognize that God is sovereign. God is in control over these proceedings. Paul is not alone. Paul is not forsaken. There is always a pattern followed in such proceedings, and we see them followed here. First of all, the lawyer for the prosecution, he would present the case. He would begin with flattering words to the governor slash judge, who's the same person. And though this was typical, a typical way to, to open up the prosecution, Tertullus' opening words to Felix are nauseatingly rich even for what was expected. He opened with, look at verse 2, since we have through you attained much peace. I'm going to stop there. The so-called peace that Felix maintained came at a very high price for the Jewish people. As one scholar writes, Felix is credited with being most responsible of all the governors leading up to the Jewish war for stirring up ill will and trouble by his brutal suppression of various Jewish and Samaritan groups. As far as the Jewish people were concerned, there was only peace under Felix because he 
thoroughly and horrifically crushed any dissent. One person wrote, it was more pacification than peace. I would say even suppression than peace. Tertullus, the attorney, he continues, verse 2. And since by your providence reforms are being carried out in this nation, well, by adding the word providence and speaking of the supposed positive changes Felix has brought in the five years that he has been governor of Judea, the attorney manages, uh, manages to mention in his first sentence the two goals of every Roman official. This was intentional. Those two goals are the maintaining of peace and a providential or wise handling of the law. When it came to the law, a governor, he had a lot of flexibility, a lot of leeway. He could reform it. He could bend it, depending on the circumstances. And so Tertullus, at this point, I'm sure, in flattering Felix, talking about his providence and his peace, he was hoping that Felix would maybe revise the law in his direction against Paul. Whatever the case, Felix's ego was being uh, stroked here. He is most excellent Felix, who in every way and everywhere carries out these peaceful and judicious reforms on behalf of the Jewish people, when everyone really knew that he could care less about the Jewish people, at least as an ethnic group. I'm sure it was difficult to keep the, uh, the snickering concealed and the, the eye-rolling hidden as Tertullus spoke of how thankful they all were. After a promise to be brief, which I'm sure was a relief to hear, and a nod toward the kindness of the governor, the attorney finally proceeds with his charges, starting in verse 5. There are three charges you'll notice that are brought against Paul. The first is political. The second is religious with political undertones. And the third charge is religious. So first of all, I want us to consider through what the attorney presents how he obscures the truth, obscuring the truth. We find the first charge brought against Paul in verse 5. For we have found this man a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. This is a political accusation that would have had the most traction with a Roman governor. And the accusation is that Paul is a troublemaker, that he is a troublemaker among Jews, not only in Jerusalem, but throughout the world. If there's anything that Rome did not tolerate, it was unrest. They didn't like that. The empire prided herself on what has been called the Pax Romana, which is Latin for Roman peace. And this Pax Romana was basically 200 years of Roman imperialism, prosperity and stability on a level and scale that was unheard of in history. Uh, this, this piece was not the result of all the different ethnic groups and nations under Rome's rule choosing to live together in harmony. This piece was primarily because the Roman government quickly crushed any dissent with its military force. So as noted, Felix, he was especially eager to exercise his authority over Judea. If you recall back in chapter 21 of Acts, Felix was the governor referred to 
when the Egyptian led the 4,000 Jewish men to the Mount of Olives from where this Egyptian announced the walls of Jerusalem would fall at his command. And so Felix the governor ordered his troops against them, killing hundreds and scattering the rest. This was that guy. He did not give them an inch of opportunity to do anything. Tertullus, the prosecutor, he knew that a charge against Paul of stirring up dissension would appeal to Felix's sense of responsibility to Rome. And so he calls Paul a pest. Though this word can refer to something like maybe you're picturing a flea or a rat, something that's a pest, it is really closer in this sense to mean pestilence. This unflattering description It compares Paul to a contagious disease, something like a plague who's trying to infect everyone that he meets with his delusions. He's been creating division among all the Jews throughout the world. And this exaggeration is meant to to indicate that the incident in the temple was not Paul's first rodeo. He has a pattern of doing this, supposedly. Now, of course, these things are not true. Beyond that, The accusations about Paul causing trouble elsewhere, those are irrelevant. If that was the case, then there should be witnesses from those other places that can confirm that Paul has done these things. So on one hand, Paul is considered a pest, like the plague, which is not a charge, it's an insult. It reflects the hatred of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council toward him. On the other hand, The charge about Paul stirring up dissension, which is an accusation of sedition, not a good thing. That's not a specific charge. So Tertullus, he's being careful here. Because if Felix, the governor, thinks that Paul created problems elsewhere, outside of his jurisdiction, then he might transfer him to another governor to hear the case. And the unbelieving Jews accusing Paul, they do not want that to happen. They need him to stay here. So notice that the charge is vague. It has no substance. It's hard to charge someone with a crime they haven't committed. And Paul's many travels to preach the gospel all across the Roman Empire, he never sought to stir up trouble politically or otherwise. We've seen that as we've gone through the book of Acts. Paul preached the gospel of peace. Paul's message was consistent. Because of your sins, you are not at peace with God. You're under judgment. But God loves you and provides a way for you to be reconciled to him. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you can have peace with God. That was Paul's message. It was not Paul who ever stirred up trouble. If anything, it was how people reacted to the preaching of the gospel. Just like in our day, when the word of God went forth, some embraced the message and received eternal life, and some rejected it and judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. Paul was not responsible for how people responded. He was only responsible for what he said and whether his life was consistent with his message. We see the same reactionary mindset developing 
within our modern society. I'm talking about the false idea of me being responsible for how you respond to my words. It often gets mislabeled under the category of hate speech. Heard that before? And this is essentially what Paul is being accused of, hate speech. It's the idea that I must censor my words or my opinion or my message because what I have to say might hurt someone else's feelings. Taken to the extreme, it's the idea that my words are acts of violence that should be punishable by law. And we observe this playing out all around us. If you speak against the atrocity of abortion and you call it what it is, the, the murder of an unborn baby in what should be the safest place in the world, a mother's womb, if you say that, then there are those who are pro-abortion that say your speaking out is hate speech. Then, if someone goes out and, and shoots up an abortion clinic, God forbid, killing people in the process, there are a large number of people in society who will say, you are partly to blame because somehow you bear the responsibility for another person's evil actions. You are not responsible for what somebody else does. Period. You are responsible for what you do. The law in this nation has always recognized your right to free speech and at the same time recognized another person's responsibility to control their own behavior. Now, it is illegal and it should be for you or me to attempt to incite violence with our words. You sharing your viewpoint, however, is not violence, no matter how much your opinion might offend somebody else. This is relevant stuff for our day and age. There are certainly people who say hateful things. There are people who say horrific things that all of us would vehemently disagree with. But to label someone's words hate speech and to put what they say in a category that makes it a crime to say it, that is a road that we do not want to go down. Today, we might all agree, I hope we all agree, that, that some you know, neo-Nazi spouting off hatred towards Jewish people is appalling. But if he does not have the freedom to express his opinion, no matter how detestable, tomorrow you will not have the freedom to express yours, no matter how legitimate. The problem with labeling certain speech hate speech is that the people in control get to decide what is hateful and what is not. The people in control, if you haven't noticed, don't always like what Christians have to say. Especially about topics like abortion or sexualizing children through public school curriculum or mutilating teenagers because they're confused about their gender or pushing back on the LGBTQ agenda that's being pushed on everyone. If you oppose these things and more because your conscience will not allow you to remain silent, it will be labeled by some as hate speech. 
we have to protect all speech or no speech is protected. Paul is accused of stirring up dissension by his preaching. In modern day terms, Paul has engaged in hate speech. He's made certain unbelieving Jews angry by what he had to say. Now, don't get me wrong. I realize that Paul does not live in America in the 21st century. He does not have a First Amendment like we do. But he does still have quite a bit of protection under the law as a Roman citizen. And he has not done anything criminal by preaching the gospel. He never sought to incite violence. Recall that all those who engaged in rioting as a result of Paul's past preaching are the ones who should be on trial if the charge is sedition. They are responsible for how they responded to Paul's words, not Paul. So much for the first charge. The second charge, verse 5, is that Paul is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, some scholars believe this charge is not really separate, but it's in addition to the first charge. But in either case, even treated separately, the charge is the same. Basically, Paul is being accused of sectarianism, of disrupting the unity within Judaism. This word sect, it can have either a positive or a negative connotation. The same word, sect, was used in the first century to describe the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And those are two groups that, that are both within Judaism, that both made up the, the Sanhedrin, the council bringing charges against Paul. But when used to describe different groups within Judaism, sect is positive. In this case, however, as the word is used against Paul, it's negative. Then we have Nazarenes, a term used to refer to Christians. It was based on the fact that Jesus was from Nazareth, and so his followers are called Nazarenes. Felix if you notice, did not ask what a Nazarene was, so it must have been a term that was already in common use. Describing Paul as a ringleader was a word used most commonly to refer to military leaders. And that was really both a true and a false charge. Like all accusations, there is some truth mixed in to the lie. And this is why false accusations are believable. Not true, but believable, because they have some truth injected into them. Was Paul a leader? Of course. Paul was a leader in the church. He himself often said, follow me as I follow Christ. That is the language of leadership. No one within or without, of the, mo or without the movement would deny this. But, but the word ringleader, used in the same sentence with sect and Nazarenes, it loaded this charge with all sorts of negative freight. And this was Tertullus' way of making it seem like Paul was one of the many false messianic type leaders who rose up from time to time in order to lead Jewish people against Rome. Such people got Felix's attention. That's what the attorney is trying to do. The third charge, verse 6 is that Paul even tried to desecrate the temple. This is a religious charge. But remember, when it came to this particular charge, though the Romans did not allow the Jews to put anyone to death, in this case, they made an exception. 
if a Gentile was found in an area of the temple that was prohibited to Gentiles, the Romans gave the Jews the authority of capital punishment. However, Tertullus, the attorney, he's very careful how he words this. Paul did not bring a Gentile into a forbidden area. Those beating Paul previously in the temple courts, when the Roman commander intervened, they'd assumed Paul brought a Gentile into a forbidden area. Not that he had done so. And since it did not happen, there are no witnesses. There is no evidence. It's hard to produce witnesses or evidence for something that did not happen. The attorney had to settle with the phrase, he even tried to desecrate the temple. But notice how he adds, so indeed we arrested him. This too is a distortion of the facts. The Jews, they had their own temple guards tasked with the security of the temple, but they weren't the ones who arrested Paul. The Roman commander Lysias arrested Paul. Tertullus, he left out the fact that Paul was being lynched and Lysias had to rescue him from death at the hands of certain unbelieving Jews. The attorney, he concludes by encouraging Felix to interrogate Paul to confirm what he said is true. This too was according to procedure, but the governor chooses not to do so at this time. This, even though, verse 9, the Jews also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. In these charges brought against Paul, we see different ways truth is obscured. There is flattery. Felix is a reformer who brings peace. There is exaggeration. Paul is a plague infecting the world. There is misrepresentation. Paul stirs up dissension. There is shifting blame. Paul is responsible for how others react to his words. There is mixing a little truth with a lie to make it more believable. Paul is a leader of a dangerous sect. And there is outright false accusations. Paul desecrated the temple. Lies take many forms. And we need to guard against speaking lies in any form, whether it be exaggeration, misrepresentation, shifting blame, mixing truth with a lie, or outright dishonesty. God desires truth in the innermost being. That's Psalm 51, 6. The people of God speak the truth in love. That's Ephesians 4.15. It is the adversary who traffics in lies, who, according to Jesus, does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. That's John 8.44. The truth has been obscured. But now we turn to verses 10 through 21 to consider Paul's truthful response. So from obscuring the truth to revealing the truth. Revealing the truth. In contrast to the attorney's speech, Paul does not open with flattery. He does follow proper procedure, but all he does is respectfully acknowledge the role Felix is now playing. Verse 11, knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Felix has judged many cases. He's been the governor of Judah, Judea for five years. And Paul, 
in all sincerity, makes a defense with cheerfulness. He was the one who wrote, Rejoice always. When a situation arose wherein it was difficult to rejoice, Paul did what he admonished other Christians to do. He remained cheerful. Joy is a choice. It's only been 12 days since Paul was arrested in the temple courts. We've been more weeks in these chapters, so I'm sure it seems like longer to you. It's only been 12 days. Five of these days were spent waiting in Caesarea for this trial that's going on. The first charge, again, was one of sedition. And Paul says in verse 11, you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And neither in the temple did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot, nor in the synagogues, nor in the city itself. Notice that Paul begins with, you can take note of the fact. In other words, everything that I'm about to say is verifiable. Unlike the accusations of his accusers, Paul's defense is grounded in what really happened. And this is one reason the truth is so important. It never changes. If you are being truthful, you don't have to you don't have to think hard about what you're going to say because you're only recalling what actually occurred. No one can catch you in your words because there's nothing to catch. And we should expect nothing less from a Christian. You never have to exaggerate to prove a point. You don't have to argue to prove a point. You don't have to worry about the lies that might be spoken about you. All that you have to do as a follower of Jesus is to speak the plain truth. Truth is your greatest defense. Truth will always vindicate itself because God always honors the truth. The truth will always come to light wherever it's been obscured or suppressed or covered. You simply need to stand in its light by speaking truthfully. The truth may not be revealed tomorrow, may not even be revealed next year, but it will always prevail. It will always come to light. Paul essentially says, they accuse me of being a nuisance and always stirring up trouble wherever I go, but I wasn't even at the temple to take part in a debate or a discussion. I was there to worship. Never started a riot in the temple courts. I've never done so in a synagogue. I've never done so in any city where I've traveled. If these things that I'm being accused of are true, prove it. Prove it. Verse 13, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. I said there's some similarities between our justice system and the Roman system, and this is one of them. The accuser must back up his accusations with evidence. Prove it. That's the first charge in this defense. The second charge was that Paul disrupted the religious unity within Judaism. Though this, this should not have been a charge with which the civil governor was concerned, Tertullus, the attorney, he twisted it so that it sounds like Paul was yet another anti-Roman leader. And since it was a religious accusation, Paul's answer is not so much for the benefit of the governor as it is for the high priest and the elders who are observing these proceedings. Verse 13, 
But I confess this to you in accordance with the way which they do call a sect. I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and is written in the prophets. Paul uses this opportunity to witness. Are you surprised? Of course we're not surprised. Whether he's free or whether he's in chains, Paul is going to seize the chances that he gets to proclaim the gospel. Now, there is not an explicit mention of Jesus Christ at this point, but sharing the gospel does not always mean you must say everything there is to say. Sometimes you're planting seeds. Sometimes you're preparing hearts for a fuller explanation. Sometimes you're taking the opportunity before you to say what you can say. Paul is not in a pulpit. He's on trial for his life. Listen how he is intentional about testifying to the truth of the gospel. He does not choose to use the word Nazarenes in his defense, but instead he refers to Christians as the way. This was witnessing. He's witnessing. A way is a path, a direction, a lifestyle. A lifestyle. At the center of the Christian faith is Jesus Christ. He points the way to the Father. He himself is the way. When his followers placed their faith in him, they found the way. This is what everybody's looking for. The way. Some people think the way is making a lot of money, living comfortably, and retiring well. Some people think the way is working so you can recreate on the weekends. There's nothing wrong with hunting or fishing or golfing or traveling or knitting or reading or shopping or whatever gives you pleasure on your off days. But hobbies and recreation are not the way. Some people in our society think the way is, is unrestrained sex whenever and with whomever you want it. A life of pleasure. I mean, all of these things I just mentioned, they're all a search for meaning, just manifesting in different ways. Only Christians have found the meaning of existence. The way is Jesus. Though Tertullus, he called the church a sect, Paul makes the point that he wants the unbelieving Jews who are listening to ponder. He says he serves the same God they serve, the God of Israel, the God of our fathers. Following Jesus as the Messiah is not a departure from Judaism. It is the fulfillment of everything promised in the Old Testament. Verse 14, I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and is written in the prophets. The truth is not that Paul is a heretic that departed from the faith. The truth is that he is an Israelite in the truest sense. He embraced Jesus Christ as the Messiah promised to Israel. And as he usually does, Paul also attempts to find common ground. Verse 15, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Paul knows how 
contentious this matter of the future resurrection is to the Pharisees and Sadducees. We've talked about that before. He knows how the matter divided them the last time when he addressed the whole council. But here, his motive is not to divide. His motive is to remind everyone observing the trial, Jew and Gentile, that we will all give an account. There will be a resurrection of all men. There will be a heavenly court. The standard of judgment will be righteousness versus wickedness. This fact, this coming reality, is embedded in the conscience of every human being. And Paul knows that. We all intuitively know that we will give an account. And because of this, Paul continues in verse 16. I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before other people. Do you? The question is, how does one maintain a blameless conscience before God. Left to yourself, your conscience rightly condemns you. No one, not even Paul, can claim a perfectly clean conscience before God. The conscience, it rightly condemns you and me as not righteous, but wicked. When we sin, when we do those things or think those things or say those things that displease God, we will all give an account for what we've done, said, and thought as verified or affirmed by the conscience. Anyone who is found righteous at the resurrection will only be so because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Romans 4.25, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Jesus Christ died to receive the punishment of your sins. Jesus Christ rose to make you acceptable to God. Faith in him alone was Paul's hope. It's your hope. It's my hope. Having received that cleansing from sin and that gift of righteousness, Paul did his best to maintain a blameless conscience before God and before men. What is it that brings blame upon the conscience? It's sin. And as a Christian, you are responsible through the power of the Holy Spirit to keep yourself free from sin. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, we read these words. I am writing these things to you so you may not sin. This is our pursuit. Walking with God and avoiding that which grieves Him. The next verse in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 reads, And if anyone sins, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus Christ is your only hope today and your only hope on judgment day. The only reason that anyone will be found righteous then 
is because Christ is their righteousness now. Jesus is the one who stands in your place before God. Because Christ is your righteousness, you pursue righteousness. You strive to maintain a blameless conscience. If you stumble, he's your advocate. He is the one who received what you deserve, death, so that you will not be separated from God in spiritual death forever. Even now, if you are a Christian, Jesus lives to make intercession for you. This was Paul's hope. This is your hope. This is my hope. And as for the final charge, and perhaps the most serious because of the death penalty it carried, Paul was accused of desecrating the temple. He responds that he was found in the temple doing what? Presenting offerings. He was doing what every other Jew at the temple was doing. He was worshiping. The charge was he defiled the temple. The truth is he had gone to the temple to complete a vow. We read back in Acts 21, 26, Paul took the men and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple. This is why in recounting before Felix, he makes sure to say, verse 18, they found me occupied in the temple having been purified. That's the opposite of desecration. The charge, the matter that almost got Paul lynched in the first place was that he brought a Gentile from Ephesus into the area of the temple forbidden to Gentiles. But he did not do that. It was not true. The charge was desecration. The truth was purification. And this is why he says to Felix in verses 18 through 19, there are some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you and to make accusation. In other words, where are the witnesses of this supposed violation? Where are the witnesses of this charge punishable by death? They aren't here. The accusers must face the accused and evidence must be provided. There is that which accuses all of us before the final judge. That is sin. The evidence is in. The proof is at hand. You are guilty. I am guilty. 1 John 1.8 If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. The wonder of the gospel is that the judge became the accused. Jesus Christ took off his judicial robes. He stepped down from the judgment seat. He received your condemnation and he died in your place. The one who always lived truth and spoke truth died as a sinner, though no sin was found in him. And this is so. You can stand before your judge today. And so, on judgment day, you will be declared innocent. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you as the God of all truth. Lord, we as your people who represent you, who seek to glorify you, we want to live lives that 
are lived in the light of your truth. Help us to speak the truth, Father. Help us not to exaggerate, misrepresent, twist words, cast, or shift blame, but to walk as children of, of your light. Lord, in, in those ways that we have spoken the truth and the truth has been concealed or hidden and we're still waiting for it to be revealed, waiting for that vindication, Lord, help us to wait on you because you will bring everything to light in your time. Everything that's hidden will be revealed. So we trust you, we wait on you, we praise you and we love you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.